Hey friend, this podcast is brought to you by The Family Thrive, an expert-led, science-backed online community for busy parents looking to thrive. Join us at thefamilythrive.com. You really have to be somewhat cognizant, cautious of label call-outs now. When, when you go into a grocery store and you're buying like an actual packaged good, whether it's in a box, it's a can, a package, whatever, you really have to be diligent about organic call-outs, natural call-outs, or other bold claims that you're viewing. You ever wonder about what exactly is in those supposedly healthy snacks you buy at the grocery store? Sure, it says all natural, organic, keto, grass-fed on the package, but is it actually good for you and your kids? In this episode, I get to talk to a food industry insider, Josh Field, who has worked in test kitchens for some pretty big food companies. The guy knows his stuff. We asked Josh to come on to answer all our questions about what goes into supposedly healthy packaged food products. We talk proteins, fats, fibers, and artificial sweeteners, and we get to find out how all this stuff gets made and what we as parents should be looking out for. There's a lot of information in this episode, and so you'll definitely want to check out the show notes where we'll provide links, definitions, and a whole lot more. All right, buckle up. Here we go with food industry insider, Josh Field. I want to start off, though, by talking about how we first met. And I don't know if you remember this, but for me, it's stuck in my memory that we first met you uh, when you were working with Quest and you were like part of the team cooking up crazy stuff in the lab. Uh, do you remember that? I, I do, indeed. I um, So what stands out most to me is... Victoria naturally very excited and, and Victoria was kind of like the facilitator of, of the relationships and she had been doing a lot of work and communicating with you guys and eventually she kind of brought me in from a food development standpoint. A lot of the things that we were doing in um, Quest Labs when we we're at Quest Nutrition at the time, we were developing keto meals, frozen meals, and we were using those as kind of a way to increase um, a certain couple studies that we were looking at the the efficacy of the study. So just increasing the the compliance of it. And she was like, hey, you know, I, I met this phenomenal couple and she, you know, gave me the backstory. And one of the opening statements was by Audra was that she had a uh, phenomenal uh, keto pasta noodle that she was working on. And, and I don't know why, like <laughs> that just, that just really stands out and um, yeah, very memorable because at that time, that was something that we were working on, and it just seemed like to be that elusive form factor that we just cut nail. And I was like, "Wait a minute! Someone has like perfected this." But yeah, no, I am um, <laughs> incredibly thankful that our, our our paths crossed, and it's been um, amazing since. I don't want to give a free plug for Quest here, but I will because uh, it was really amazing what they were doing at the time, and they still do amazing work. But uh, Quest Nutrition, for anyone who doesn't know, they they do a lot of low carb, high protein products. But this time in the company's history, they were doing a lot of work that was just in the lab trying to see if they could make keto products uh, or keto formulations for stuff that is very not keto, like cinnamon rolls. And it was amazing what you guys were coming up with. And it was a perfect time for us because Max, our son, 
had a recurrence uh, with his brain tumor at that time. And so we were going back on the ketogenic diet in a hardcore way, uh, supported by our doctors at Children's Hospital of Orange County. And we were now looking for new keto products. Like this kid had been on the ketogenic diet for a couple of years previous to that. So to have cinnamon rolls and you guys had what, what you had so many cool things. Uh, I, I remember the, I think you had a keto chocolate peanut butter cup at that time. What are the other uh, formulations? Do you remember in anything that really stood out to you? Well, I know the cinnamon roll was like a, like an achievement of science. It was like the most amazing thing in the world. Yeah, that, that thing was remarkable. And to my knowledge, no one else has has came out with another keto cinnamon roll that even closely competes to, to what we had formulated. Yeah, that, that thing was absolutely amazing. We would go off and of course we would do, I'm not even going to try to remember the actual name of the former Metabolic Health Summit, but we would go there when, when I was in Tampa, Florida. I can't exactly remember what the name of it was and Victoria and Angela and Dom were probably going to kick my shin because I can't remember it, but we would go there and of course we would have hundreds of attendees and we would just blow through those things. But so we had two different lines. We had a meal frozen line. And with that, we actually had 42 options. Um, And that, that, that number stands out, but I mean, it was was kind of an easy number to achieve because we had four breakfast sandwiches. We had five different pizza iterations. We had bolognese. um, We had like our, our own rendition of, a um, in and out um, double double with the special sauce, and we we had just so many different um, meals that uh, yeah, sometimes it was kind of difficult to, to keep track of. But in addition to that, exactly what you had mentioned, we had a shelf stable snack line as well, and with that we had crackers, we had cheese crackers, oh, yeah. we had oh, he loved those, three or four yes. different cup flavors. Um, we had like these little chocolate fat bombs. Yes, um, yes, yeah kind of um now you know in in the rear view mirror it, it's kind of um remarkable what we were able to do and achieve and to take to the marketplace what no one else has done and still no one else to this day has done what we did it's just unfortunate that we um we ended up pulling the plug and draining it in 2017. It's like the four minute mile of food science or, you know, like it. So Josh, tell me, how did you get started in the food product, the, the, the world of product formulation and the food industry? Where did it begin for you? Kind of all happened, just kind of stumbled into it just out of my personal passion and, and love for all things nutrition. So really the the genesis for all this is from a really young age. Um, I was just super fascinated with, with muscle. There was just something that just struck me about, you know, the, you know, muscle and veins and shredded, you know, delts and calves and, and whatnot. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe it was because I was watching, you know, the Incredible Hulk and the the eighties on, on television, but it was just a fascination yeah. with that. And, um, yeah, just all things, nutrition, self-taught. So formally, um, I have a business degree. Actually, I don't have a degree in nutrition. I have various nutritional certifications through accredited, um, agencies, but it was just pure passion. It's like, you know, how do I, how do I, and how can I manipulate 
the body just through uh, nutritional input and through the the various diets that uh, myself and um, my wife have kind of put ourselves through with those different dietary protocols, you kind of have to figure out how to navigate, you know, typical food items that you usually enjoy. It's like, well, now I can't have this particular ingredient. And, you know, how do I try to make a and develop an analog that closely resembles it. And then just serendipitously uh, became friends with um, two of the the founders of Quest Nutrition, Ron and uh, Shannon Penna. And Ron pulled me into the ecosystem just because of my you know passion and love for all things nutrition. And then I was just thrown into this accelerator where it was just packed full of a bunch of super curious, brilliant individuals that Additionally, didn't necessarily have like a formal education in nutrition, um, but just our ability to do a lot of repetitions incredibly fast, you learn incredibly fast. And I I think, um, yeah, that's how all things came to be with food product development. So now you've worked with a number of different health-focused food companies so what should parents know in general? We're, we're like, we're going to dig into the specifics, but from like a 30,000 foot view, what should parents know about the food industry as a whole? Kind of a loaded question. And <laughs> I, I think if, I, I think if you were to ask 10 different people, you'd probably get 10 different responses, but I'll share kind of my position on it. And I would say it it likely aligns with um, yourself, Audra, and what you guys are doing. You really have to be somewhat cognizant, cautious of label call-outs now. When when you go into a grocery store and you're buying like an actual packaged good, whether it's in a box, it's a can, a package, whatever, you really have to be diligent about organic call-outs, natural call-outs, or other bold claims that you're doing. So natural is a big one. So if a parent sees natural on a label, what should they think? In all honesty, it really doesn't mean all that much. It's kind of like a black hole. It's like um, an abyss. Um, The one thing that natural is supposed to validate is that it doesn't have any bioengineered ingredients or food ingredients in it, meaning it's not necessarily, necessarily going through um, a synthetic alteration, adjusting or changing the molecular structure of a specific food and or ingredient. So that, that's probably the one thing, but even that it's so loosely um, interpreted in the food space and by the FDA. Yeah. So uh, what I understand is that natural is actually not regulated by the FDA. Is that right? Like anyone can put natural on anything or do I have that wrong? No, it's so there are guidelines, um, CFRs, Code of Federal Regulations, and anyone they can go go to Doctor Google and type in Code of Federal CFR um, natural food claim, and there are paragraphs with information on that. But again, how it was scripted, it's it's I guess open to interpretation. But yeah, to your point, yeah, I mean, if you want to put. Natural, made with natural ingredients, you know, in it or on it. But would that claim is that the 
entire makeup, the build and material, are all of those ingredients natural or maybe two out of the 11 are natural? It's, it's, it's kind of a difficult landscape to, to navigate. Oh, so made with natural ingredients, only a few of the ingredients or even one of the ingredients <laughs> or made with a natural or at least two, right? Because <laughs> they're using the word plural. Yeah. It, it's, it's definitely a, a slippery slope, but to, to kind of circle back to your initial question, um, in a positive light, we actually, we're in a great time right now, um, just because of all the advancements in, in food science. And we have various dietary protocols that are out there. And because of the internet and social media, you have access to really unlimited uh, information. You know, if, if you want to eat just whole foods and you're curious, you know, well, how do I comply to, you know, a whole food or a whole food 30 approved diet? You know, there's information out there and you have consumer packaged good companies that are labeling that same exact thing for keto companies, for paleo companies, for vegan, etc. cetera. Um, so it, it's, it's easy to eat and be compliant to any, I guess, preference of choice. Yeah. But for, me as a busy parent, like, I don't want to do all that work. And so I'm like trying to get the like quick and easy stuff from you. <laughs> right? So like, now I've got a clue about natural, like, all right, so if I see the word natural on a package, I know that it's almost going to be meaningless because it could have two ingredients that are natural and then a bunch that aren't right. So um, so that's, that's a good, that's a good rule of thumb. And I've started to use that where if I see the word natural on a package, I immediately become suspicious. Like, oh, this is, they're, they're trying to pull something over, but I'm surprised. So you also said organic. So why should parents be a little suspicious about the organic label? It's, it's the same exact thing. So, um, to be compliant with an organic certification, um, it is a bit more of a stringent process, um, just going through the, you know, the appropriate approval uh, documentation, getting all of that set up and certified through the organic um, accrediting agency. So if they have that on the label, you're looking for like the specific little bubble call out, it's like a little green with a leaf um, thing on it there. That means that the entire food product is you know, compliant with organic standards, but where things may become like a little bit complicated or confusing is food companies now are putting in the ingredient statement or just as an end statement in the front of the packaging made with organic ingredients. And it's the same exact thing as, you know, the natural thing in which they, they may have an ingredient or build a material recipe um, for layman. Um, say of 10 ingredients and they use two organic ingredients. So with that, they'll put made with an organic ingredients. That doesn't necessarily mean the entire thing is organic, but they did have a couple or a few ingredients that um, are certified organic. Awesome. All right. So that's super helpful. So I have assumed that if a package says organic anywhere on it, that the whole thing's going to be organic and I can just rest easy, but you're saying that I'm going to need to look a little closer. And is this whole thing organic or is it just one or two ingredients that are organic? All right. Exactly. Uh, and another thing too, just to add to that, um, for small business, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult uh, to go through the process, even if you do have 
you know, all of your ingredients, they are organic, they meet all their, the requirements. Going through that actual organic certification process, of course, it, it costs something. So if you're a new company starting up and you're a bit strapped with, with capital, sometimes that organic certification, it's beyond that financial reach. So you may have a product that technically is, you know, 100% organic. It's just that they don't have, you know, the, the capital to invest to, to put on that. But I guess that's also the beauty of, you know, social media is that now everyone's accessible. So if you're kind of curious about a specific bar or cookie or whatever it is, you know, definitely reach out to the company and, and just ask. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of a couple different companies that actually are 100% organic. It's just that they can't afford to go through that organic process. decade ago, Audra and I received news no parent ever expects to hear. Your four-year-old son has brain cancer. In that hospital room in Orange County, California, we had our fair share of tears and despair. But we also vowed that we would use this to help our family thrive no matter what. A decade later, after starting a nonprofit that has served thousands of childhood cancer families, We're on a mission to bring all of the amazing researchers, doctors, therapists, and other experts we've worked with to all families everywhere. That's why we created The Family Thrive, an online platform and community of top health and wellness experts and parents like us who are looking to thrive against the odds. It has fresh daily expert articles on topics that matter to parents like us, like how to cook a superfood meal in under 20 minutes, or the latest sleep science that can boost our kids' mental health, or simple things we can do to thrive as parents. We have top credentialed experts breaking it all down into bite-sized chunks of actionable wisdom. And you know when they say it takes a village to raise a family? Well, this is our village, and it's filled with quick-bite expert wellness information and conversations that are designed specifically for busy parents. And when you're ready to dive deeper, we also have group-based workshops written and led by PhD researchers, psychologists, and clinical dietitians. This village is all on your phone, at your fingertips, whenever you need it. Join for free today at thefamilythrive.com. It seems to me that it would be really easy as a parent if I can just know, like, here are some trustworthy brands, here are some trustworthy companies that are going to do the right thing, um, and then I can kind of rest easy in consuming their products. So uh, how can parents determine, like, what's a trustworthy brand and what's not? Are, Are there any rules of thumb or is it something that requires a lot of research? The latter. Um, it, it does require like a little bit of legwork. And the only reason I'm going to say that, again, which you're spot on the perfect segue, is that you have a lot of new emerging um, food companies or, or beverage companies. And it, it's a, again, it's an amazing time to be jumping in there just because everyone that can kind of, you know, fall into their own dietary preferred, you know, segment and, and speak to that specific customer, you know. But the downfall with that is oftentimes if you're, you know, grassrooted bootstrapped, you're starting up in a oftentimes in an incubator or a commercial kitchen where um, a lot of your regulatory guidelines, GMPs, uh, good manufacturing processes sometimes are maybe a little bit 
overlooked and it could be as simple as they're making, you know, I'll say pasta. I don't know why I have pasta on my mind right now. Maybe it's because I need some pasta. I need some Audra's, <laughs> you know, pasta. <laughs> Everybody's got pasta on. Exactly. On the yeah. But, you know, like a good example of that is they may be in a commercial kitchen and they have a handful of hired team members. None of them, they didn't go through a proper hand washing protocol. They're not wearing the hair nets or, you know, your latex gloves, things of, of that sort. And when they're forward brand facing, they're actually in a, a retail location and you see the, the product up on shelf, maybe the packaging or the design doesn't exactly look up to standard, say, compared to some of the larger, you know, uh, conglomerate brands, like the, the big players in the space. Oftentimes, it's difficult to know what sort of regulatory compliance they actually adhere to, even if they're small and you want to support the, the local home team player, if that food product was made on a larger manufacturing line where there are stricter policies and guidelines that the individuals that are, you know, running those plants and or lines that they have to adhere to, and all of it's about food safety protocol. So it it can be a little bit difficult to know what is, you know, uh, a, a good solid brand, um, regardless if it tastes good, you know, the ingredients may be stored in a, you know, a shed that's 110 degrees and high humidity and collecting bacteria. It's just, it's difficult to, to kind of navigate that. What I'm about to say kind of bothers me a little bit, but, you know, typically a safe play is generally you can trust the large food companies in the context that they adhere to, you know, strict food safety uh, protocols. That excludes certain food ingredients, which likely I'm assuming we'll probably get into that a little bit, but it is, it's, it's, it's a tough one to navigate knowing exactly which one is safe, which one isn't safe from a food safety standpoint. Yeah. So from a food safety st- standpoint, it makes perfect sense. You go with the big guys, they're going to have their uh, processes tied up. Uh, I'm thinking, and we, we, we are going to get into the issues around particular ingredients, but I'm thinking I have come to trust Quest because in the past, I've known that they have worked hard to get the right ingredients and they've switched out ingredients that they didn't find met their standards. And so I have come to trust Quest. Um, I'm w- wondering if there are ways to have to get to that same level of trust with other companies or if there's an easy way to do it. Uh, maybe there's not an easy way and you just need to do a lot of research. It's research and communicating. So one of the reasons why I believe that you trusted Quest is because you were welcomed into that ecosystem in all facets, from a digital standpoint to an email standpoint, to phone calls, to video calls, to in-person meeting with the team, with, with the founders. And you got to see the passion behind what we were doing. And sometimes I think that's what's lost in, in translation is the why and the passion behind what you're doing. That, of course, gives you know the, the warm and the fuzzies, but it was actually hearing from people like you 
um, around why particular ingredients were chosen. And so it's not that these ingredients were chosen because they were the cheapest. They're not the easiest. It's that these are the best ingredients and this is what we're going to go for. And so that is the type of thing that I want to know about other brands. Like, are you just doing the quick and easy thing or are you choosing the right ingredients for your products? But it sounds like it's just a matter of doing the research. Yeah. And I would say now more than ever, we're in this um, huge rocket phase of all things low carb, keto, zero added sugar, zero sugar, anything like that. And some of the, the choice selection of those sugar replacements aren't exactly what I think some people would want to consume if they actually knew what they were and what they were doing, yeah. where you and everything that you're doing with Max and of course, all the other families that you guys worked with, you needed to come from an informed uh, perspective standpoint, knowing that actually there is a difference between various um, polyols, you know, sorbitol, yeah. maltitol, erythritol, yeah. uh, xylitol, and different things like that and being selective, you know, where um, I, I think that we're on the cusp of a more informed consumer set, but it's just one of those things that slowly comes with, with time. It's just that you understand, understood the specificity of the foods that we were making, how they were applicable to what you and Audra are essentially doing. Yeah. All right. So this is another great segue into our next, uh, theme here, and this is getting into the ingredients. So at the family thrive, we advocate a whole foods approach. We want, you know, the, the vast majority of our foods to be real whole foods, but we're also pragmatic and we're busy parents. So we love a good packaged product as well. And so we've had to learn a lot about reading ingredients and learning about these ingredients. And we just talked about this with Quest about uh, being able to trust a brand that's going to have the right ingredients. So uh, I want to get into the, to this whole packaged food world, the, the whole, you know, industrial food complex. And we're not, uh, so we promote and advocate for whole foods, but we're not against processed foods because processed foods can be made really well and can support a totally healthy diet, especially for busy families. So Let's start to talk about the macronutrients first off. All right. So when we are talking about processed protein, okay, so a whole food protein is going to be you buy your chicken, you buy your meat, you see it there, it's whole. Um, but then when you get into a packaged product like a Quest Bar, now you've got processed proteins. So what should I be looking for as a parent for a high quality processed protein? This too is kind of like a, a slippery slope question because we, we live in an age of you're either, you know, you eat meat or you don't eat meat, you know, the, the huge plant-based movement, whatnot. Yeah, so let's say we are we are totally omnivorous. Uh, we've got a couple articles on the Family Thrive about meat science and how meat is a pr uh, perfectly healthy food. So let's just say that we are omnivorous and we are going and we want some high quality or we are looking at packaged products and we're seeing all these different protein isolates and all this stuff. What are we looking for? What should we... Uh, consider to be a good processed protein? And are there any that we should stay away from? Yeah. And the example that you just stated is, is, is probably 
uh, one of the best, if not the best options when it comes to just checking various nutritional boxes from an amino acid profile, meaning that it makes it a complete, so it supports the various biological needs of the human body um, to functionality. Um, it has uh, a very versatile application in various foods from bars to cookies to brownies to um, ready to drinks, um, various things like that. It's, it's probably the most versatile the thing that I would probably caution some people with, though, is just understanding any potential uh, intolerances that they may have when it comes to anything dairy. So to speak specific to that, um, if you're someone that is slightly lactose intolerant, um, a superior option likely would be a uh, whey protein isolate or a milk protein isolate, something of that sort, just because for the most part, it's broken down into its simplest digestible form. Yeah, so a whey protein isolate or a milk protein isolate is going to have the lactose removed. Most majority, there are some premiums out there um, that actually have completely removed the lactose from that. So I would say conceptually speaking, that's, in my opinion, that would be the best possible, we'll call it processed um, protein option that there is. I mean, it's, it's, it's a staple. It's a really easy way to get protein in. I, I do think that we are a somewhat protein uh, deprived uh, society, the world that we live in right now. And it's really quick. It's easy. Um, as long as you can tolerate it from a GI standpoint, um, low in calories. <laughs> In a lot of the low-carb, high-protein products that we buy on the market, whey protein is a major source. So are there any drawbacks or are there any uh, anything that we should be concerned about with whey protein? That, that goes a little bit deeper into the supply chain, meaning the origin, where is it coming from? Uh, there are a bunch of different suppliers out there. Um, on the surface, it's very unlikely that you'll have any insight on that. And that really, that falls that falls on the brand and as a consumer doing a proper due diligence of yes so if if we're dealing with a brand that is reputable a big one and i mean just in general whey protein are there any drawbacks to whey protein an isolate um really none that i i can see you know i'm, I'm sure that someone may have a differing opinion on that um if you were to say a whey protein concentrate, the first thing that comes to mind is it's likely it's going to have more lactose in it. So again, if you're a little bit sensitive on that, that would, you know, be of concern. But yeah, generally speaking, like a whey protein isolate, as long as it's coming from a reputable brand, um, it's, again, it, it, in my opinion, that that's like the gold standard when it comes to a protein that's processed and or, you know, incredibly efficient and it suits your on-the-go lifestyle. Another processed protein that I see a lot is pea protein. Is there anything that we should be concerned about with pea protein? So if you would ask me this question five years ago, there really weren't a lot of big players in the space. You had a couple of smaller players that were kind of tinkering, playing um, in it and of probably... Um, the most uh, prudent concern would be um, herbicides and pesticides that were used in the process of, of the farming of it, where now, because of the huge increase in awareness of 
more plant-based diet, you have some great brands and companies um, that have protein-based products or shakes or powders that are out there now. But um, a pea protein by itself, one potential drawback, again, depending on what your utility of the protein is, is that that by itself, it's not a complete protein. So if you're using it specifically in like a, a muscle building or a strength or a bodybuilding application, it probably won't be the most suitable. Um, but if you're eating somewhat of a, a well-balanced diet, meaning eggs and salmons and beef and things of, of that nature, you're going to pick up some of those amino acids that a pea protein typically is is lacking. But no, I mean, a, a pea protein, that's that's probably now the, the second most popular protein powder that, that's out there. There's so many different protein powders that exist now, um, some of which are I thought were entertaining. In, you know, going back into my quest days and vetting out some various suppliers approaching us with, you know, fish protein isolates and various things of that nature. Kind of, kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, I I haven't seen the fish protein isolates. Oh my gosh. Um. Okay. So the 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 last protein question is gonna be maybe a little triggery for some. But what do you think about gluten? So gluten is a wheat protein, of course, um, and it is used in some low-carb bread and pasta products. What do you think about gluten? From a functional standpoint, nothing beats gluten. Um, and it, it makes mm. formulation so much easier. <laughs> so from a, yeah, so from a, from a food company standpoint, thumbs up. But w- what do you personally think about it from a health standpoint? I've geeked out. Over the years, with all things microbiome, um, I think the abundance of it in the food package space, it's in so many different things. And because of that, I, I think that there's a lot of illness and inflammation that easily could be linked back or attributed to potentially overeating gluten. Um, there's some great... Uh, thought leaders and ambassadors that really are um, spearheading that entire movement. There's some wonderful books out there that I've read and some of which I I think may be a little bit controversial, but I typically try to avoid gluten. And the only reason why I say that is, again, just speaking me myself personally is this may be a little TMI for your viewers is, you know, I, I do suffer from a little bit of IBS and I do notice that when I do consume um, an abundance of gluten in a specific product, it, 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 it can have certain triggers, you know, but you know, if I eat it sparingly, it's again, I would, that's kind of like a political question. You know, there, there's science, there, there's science supporting both camps. It's more so personal preference. Um, yeah, it's, it, that's kind of a difficult one. We found an amazing low carb bread. I won't say the name, uh, but it is. I think wheat gluten like might be the number one ingredient, and it's. But the bread is so good, and um, it's this high protein, low carb bread. It makes great sandwiches and the whole thing. And uh, I have not. No one in our family has experienced any uh, GI issues with it, but it's always in the back of my mind, like, Man, this is the first ingredient on this, this this thing. So before before we move on, are there any other processed proteins that you think are good that um, if a parent sees it on a package, we can give it a thumbs up? 
Yeah. So speaking specifically to like isolated proteins, like what we just discussed, dairy protein, essentially it's, it's a gold standard. And then there are a bunch of different, actually really great plant-based um, protein powders, isolates that are out there. A couple of which that are gaining a lot of popularity. You have a pumpkin seed protein isolate. You have uh, rice protein isolate, quinoa protein isolate. Um, there's, which I, I think that you had just mentioned, um, a high gluten protein isolate. You know, with those, the one thing that you have to be cautious or aware of with some of these new, newer emerging protein isolates. Um, coming from a plant origin is actually how much protein is actually in what they're calling, say, like a, a standard serving. So what I mean by that, so like specifically in the world of formulation and developing nutritionals and, and things of that nature, um, all suppliers, they're supposed to provide you what we call a 100-gram nutritional statement or it's something comparable to that. And with your protein isolates, like a lot of your dairy proteins, they're north of 90% protein um, of that 100 gram serving, um, where some of your other plant-based ones, you're only getting maybe half of that protein load out of that 100 gram serving, meaning it's like, okay, if I'm only getting 50 grams of protein out of this 100 gram serving, well, what else is in this? Like, wh where else is that 100, or I'm sorry, that, that 50 grams coming from and oftentimes with those you're picking up some of the residual carbohydrates and, and fibers of those so um, in which all of those are you know lumped into carbs and fiber and whatnot so even if they're boldly claiming a specific protein this and or that just pay close attention to what else may be in that nutritional panel and how that kind of suits your own dietary needs Processed fats. Well, I'd say most, uh, I don't know, it seems like all fat is essentially processed. Like you don't get whole fat uh, in the wild. Um, but are there any that go into packaged products that you say stay away from? And are there any that you say are good to go? We as a society have consumed far too many omega-6 fats. And a lot of that is originating from packaged goods that are using various vegetable oils, such as canola oils, corn oil, safflower, sunflowers, different um, vegetable and seed oils of that nature, where the data, you know, solidly states that in an abundance of those particular um, omega-6 fats, it could you know lead to inflammation in the the body, the gut, the brain, and and different things of of that nature. So typically, I always say caution, be you know weary, and and if if you are going to or you're put in a situation where you're eating those, you know try to um, eat sparingly, try not to you know over consume. But typically, I say try to avoid anything that are using those um, those specific fats. Um, it's just, again, you know, go to Dr. Google and you could type in inflammation and vegetable and seed oils and you'll just get, you know, so many different scientific articles and things of, of that sort that say eat with caution. 
yeah, we will have an article on this coming out in the Family Thrive. So we'll uh, we'll get to cover this. Are there any uh, fats that you think are good to go in packaged foods? Yeah. So typically, we always like to go with fats that have a higher concentration of monounsaturated fats. Um, examples of that would be your avocado oils, um, your hyalic sunflower oil. It's just because they're a bit more stable compared to some of you know the other vegetable and seed oils that we just listed. Yeah, so it's a high oleic sunflower oil. So the oleic acid is a monounsaturated fat and it's more stable. Yeah, oh, all right. Correct. Meaning it's less likely to either degrade over time. And if you're using it in a cooking application, it's going to have a higher smoke point, meaning that you're not going to denature um, any of, of, of those things and alter the, the fatty acid profile where it would actually work against you rather than, you know, positively benefiting you know, the utility of that specific fat. But those, um, those are all all great. Um, there are some food uh, companies out there where you can actually buy animal tallow. Um, there is a brand that kind of, uh, it's a four-letter word. They're quite epic, if you will, and you can get, um, <laughs> you, you can get actual animal tallows. And, you know, oftentimes that, that's, that's what we used to, to cook with. And, you know, generally that that's the direction that we go if, if we're actively seeking fats and we're going to cook it all right so fibers so we're these next two questions i'm going to ask about fibers and sweeteners and so this all has to do with net carbs uh, and we have an article in the family thrive describing uh net carbs uh it was uh written in conjunction with our dietitians so i encourage parents to go in there check out the net carbs. But basically what we want to look for on the back of a package is it will have a total carbohydrate count. And then you can look at the fiber and you can look at some of the sweeteners. If they are zero glycemic sweeteners, then you can subtract those out. Although Josh, I'm going to ask about allulose. Is that now? Well, okay, wait, I don't want to confuse anybody, but I'm going to ask about that. Generally, you can subtract those, those out from the total carbohydrate and then you get your net carb count and so the net carb generally and josh i know you're gonna correct me on some of this but generally it's going to be the carbs that go uh, that get converted into blood sugar and so we start by subtracting fibers first off so let's talk about these processed fibers now they're in a lot of low carb foods and so i'm sure parents have seen on packages it'll say net carbs two or net carbs zero. And then you can look on the back of the package and you can, you can see the total carbohydrate is 15 or 20 or whatever. And so they get to this largely by putting a lot of fiber in the product and you then you can subtract out the fiber from the total carbs to get the net carbs. Okay. Now there are some fibers I understand that are better than others. So Josh, can you walk us through the world of f- processed fibers? It's a little bit confusing, and as a <laughs> and as a consumer, um, especially for coming from an informed position, it, it can be even a little bit more confusing. And the reason why I say that is um, the forward-facing brands they actually have the option to use different uh, names for the various fibers, uh, meaning that you you may have three different things that you could call 
you know, this particular fiber. You may have four different things that you could call this particular fiber. Um, and what I'm speaking specifically about, probably the the one that's most well known right now is tapioca fiber. And you know, generally speaking, tapioca it's a great food product, and you have tapioca flours, tapioca starches, and now you have um, 85, 90, 95 percent um, fibers that are originated from uh, tapioca. But with that. Um, there are a few different versions of tapioca fiber that you can label it as, and each one of those is actually slightly different from a metabolic standpoint. And when you say metabolic, you're saying each one will raise your blood sugar slightly differently or will affect your blood sugar in a slightly different way. Spot on, spot on. Um, and the the FDA recently just removed one of those IMO isomaltoglycosaccharide um, from what is considered on uh, the fiber list. So the FDA they have you know various nutrients of significance that they go in there and they you know have different ingredients or food items that technically can be called that for all the the various. Um, um, certifying reasons. And IMO was removed from that, but there is a close cousin to the IMO that is now being used by some uh, consumer packaged good companies that it's uh, essentially the, the same exact thing. So it can be a little bit misleading in that context. And that really goes back to doing a proper due diligence. And even then, if, if you're not sure, reaching out to whatever that brand is and just ask them, they may not tell you what specific fiber it is that they're using, but you can ask them, what's the glycemic response of you know the one that you're using? Or if you're on some sort of like therapeutic diet, meaning that you're using the ketogenic diet for a specific um, ailment or whatever it is. I mean, there are different ways to, to test your, your blood glucose levels now. And I, I would say, go ahead and test and see what, what sort of response that there is. But uh, yeah, it, it's kind of confusing times. For the average family, you know, we don't need to test our blood. We just want to purchase products that are going to not make our blood sugar skyrocket every time we eat it. So if we're looking for lower carb products, we will want to stay away from anything that has IMO because, uh, and it's isomalto. Can you <laughs> say the last part? Oligosaccharide. Yeah. <laughs> isomalto oligosaccharide. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and we will have all this in the show notes. And so if you look on the back of a package and that's the major fiber, then you can put that one back. Uh, what are some fibers that are good to go? So again, I'm going to throw tapioca fiber back out there. Um, there are a couple different suppliers. Oh, that is good. That, that, it's, that it, it is good. And, and that's where it's a little bit confusing is because you have companies that are labeling prebiotic tapioca fiber, resistant digestion uh, tapioca fiber, tapioca fiber, vegetable fiber, and all of these come from tapioca origins. And so it, it can be a little bit confusing because you have like those IMOs that are kind of being lumped up and underneath um, that tapioca fiber labeling now, but there are some really good tapioca fibers out there, um, soluble tapioca fiber, typically on some of the more um, uh, credible low carb or, or keto brands. That's the name that they're putting on the ingredient statement. Um, and those are 
great in the context that they're, they don't have any sort of a glycemic load. And maybe more importantly is they're very um, GI friendly, not glycemic index friendly, but gastrointestinal friendly. You have a soluble corn fiber or a di- digestion resistant maltodextrin. Not a lot of food companies, they're putting that on the label just for the exact reason you probably saw me stumbling over saying that, you know, and it, it, it doesn't exactly yeah, look, yeah. Look, look the best on the label either. But generally speaking, um, any company that has like a soluble corn fiber on there, that is a great fiber source as well. Um, it's very diabetic friendly, doesn't have a glycemic load on it. And it too is more uh, gastrointestinal friendly than say some of the other fibers that are out there. Speaking specifically, about inulins and chicory roots, not saying that they're oh, not yes. good good fibers. Um, there are different forms or versions of inulin, chicory roots, fructooligosaccharides that can have a different impact on blood glucose levels and also how gastrointestinal friendly they are. So I would just you know throw that out there cautiously. A lot of your low carb and, and more keto forward brands that are out there. A lot of them are using inulin and chicory root, but they're using it in an excessive amount that oftentimes can make you a little, um, a little uncomfortable, um, kind of like a hot air balloon, if you will. So, so eat <laughs> okay, cautiously. A little bit of GI distress. So that's inulin and chicory root. You don't want too much of it. Some will put fructooligosaccharide on, on, their, their label, but oftentimes your fructooligosaccharide will be lumped up under inulin as well. And um, for those that want to dive a little bit deeper into that, and if you're like, hey, that's kind of interesting. And if one of your favorite uh, low-carb keto package food brands out there has that, and you know, shoot them a note on social media and see if that's why you're maybe a yeah. little bit uh, a okay. little gassy. <laughs> So now let's get to the uh, processed sweeteners. So um, you work for a company now. We're going to talk about that in a little bit or after this. But um, you are very familiar with all of the different low carb or zero glycemic sweeteners. They're all processed, right? Like there, you know, there's nothing growing on a tree. Well, yeah, I mean, it all has to go through uh, some process, whether it's monk fruit or stevia even has to be heavily processed. Um, So I'll just lump all these under processed sweeteners. And we're talking specifically about low carb sweeteners. Let's start with the ones that we should watch out for, stay away from. I'm imagining the polyol, there there might be a few polyols in in that mix. Yep. Spot on. So speaking about sugar alcohols or polyols, uh, you have some of those, such as maltitol and sorbitol. Maltitol is probably um, the worst offender of those. Is that it? From a molecular standpoint, it's a polyol. From the chemistry, you know, strictly speaking, the chemistry aspect of it. However, from a biological standpoint, it's almost the equivalent to just straight dextrose or sugar, if you will. Two different 
examples or reasons why is typically a gram of dextrose or, or, or table sugar. It yields four calories per gram and it has a certain glycemic index response based off of a score of 100. And if you were to compare like a dextrose to maltitol, the difference is rather than four calories per gram, your maltitol is three point it's like three point six to three point eight. I apologize. I don't I don't I don't know that more <laughs> wow. specific. Oh no but the, way. the chloric density oh, I didn't realize it was so yeah, close. The, the, the chloric density it's essentially just about the same. It has almost the same equivalent blood glucose response. So the glycemic response is it's very comparable. And even worse is because of the way that your your body breaks it down and uses it and no one uses anything sparingly anymore in formulation. Typically they're using, you know, more than probably what they should be using, it can have quite the laxative effect as well. Mm. So you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're, you're kind, you're getting the, the hat trick here. Um, so that's for maltitol. Is sorbitol in the same boat? You, you, you could, you could almost lump those equal. It doesn't have the same caloric density, but um, it, it does have a glycemic response. It still has the, the same laxative effect with that. They're, you know, a couple others as well, um, but swinging to the other side of the, the pendulum here, um, the sugar alcohols or polyols um, that are more consumer friendly, especially if you're using it for a specific application, if you're diabetic or if you're on some sort of uh, uh, metabolic therapeutic diet like Max, um, you want a sugar alcohol that you want it to taste good. I mean, that's <laughs> first and foremost. You want something that closely resembles what actual sugar tastes like. But more importantly is A, the caloric load, B, what sort of blood glucose response am I going to have by consuming this? And um, right now in the, the sugar alcohol space, erythritol is, it's, it's, it's the top dog. It's the top ingredient. Um, there are different forms of erythritol that are, that are out there, depending on how much you actually consume, which you really have to work quite hard to consume the amount that actually would have an adverse effect, which would be, again, a little bit of a, a laxative effect. It wouldn't even be palatable. You, you wouldn't even be able to, to consume that much. Um, or you, you would have to be pretty persistent in your endeavor. It's like, hey, I wonder how much I can actually, you know, how much I, I have to consume to try to have like some sort of an adverse effect. But erythritol, it's, it's a phenomenal sugar alcohol. Um, it's dang near calorie free basically consume it and goes through the bloodstream and you you're urinated out um and it's uh closely resembles sugar yeah i remember researching erythritol gosh what is like maybe eight or nine years ago when we were uh eliminating sugar from max's diet and i was just so impressed with the research like it's zero glycemic. Uh, again, you, as you said, you have to eat a lot of it for there to be any GI distress. And it's safe. It is like one, there aren't any studies that I was able to find back then. And I've done some research since that show any cause for any health concern over erythritol. So I totally agree. I'm a huge fan of it. We, we, we lack an enzyme to, to break that down and to actually to utilize it. So r really, that's, that's the, the real reason behind that. So it's, again, we're, we're getting all the functional benefits of it and we're getting the organoleptics, the, the taste of it. But it's, it's literally, it's, it's in, it's, it's passing through the, the small intestine and you're urinating it out.
Now, the one thing that parents should know, and uh, we have some information uh, on this in the Family Thrive, it has a cooling effect. And so it's great for ice cream, but there are some other applications that it might not be so great for, I'm sure, in the food industry. Um, but just to recap here, so when it comes to sugar alcohols, you want to stay away from the maltitols and the sorbitol. Um, and then erythritol, which is also a sugar alcohol, is good to go. Uh, something that is still in some products that parents might see is xylitol. Josh, what do you think about xylitol? If used consumed in small, moderate amounts, um, sure, from a functional standpoint, it works great in a lot of different uh, technical formulations. It has a slightly more caloric load than erythritol. Um, from a glycemic standpoint, uh, in the diabetic community, you, you could regard it as safe. But the downfall of xylitol, too, is that it, it doesn't have the same gastrointestinal tolerance that erythritol does. So if you were to consume, for example, 10 grams of erythritol, just about everyone can tolerate 10 grams of erythritol, where if you're to consume 10 grams of xylitol, which to be honest, really is not that much in say a zero sugar or a keto bar or ice cream or whatever the snack is in an 85 to 100 gram serving, it's very common to have north of 10 grams of erythritol in there, again, to replace your sugar. Where with the xylitol, consuming 10 grams of xylitol it may cause some people some gastrointestinal uh, distress. Uh, that too has a bit of a laxative effect, and it's not puppy friendly. So you, you can't share share it with, with with your little with your little fur babies. So that that uh, <laughs> that pint of ice cream that you're eating that's made with xylitol, unfortunately, you can't yeah. share it with your with your puppy. No good. Okay, no. what about monk fruit and stevia? That's in a, a lot of products. Yeah, um, I, I say green light on both of those, especially your monk fruits. It's incredibly expensive, but um, I would say from a sensory standpoint, it's a phenomenal high-intensity sweetener. Stevia, um, the entire stevia space has made a lot of advancements. I know a lot of people still to this day that they tried stevia a handful of years ago, and they're afraid to try it just because of Sometimes that horrific taste that sometimes comes along with the original uh, Reve Stevia that's used, but there are different versions of Stevia that are out there that are far more palatable. And if the if the intent is to you know have a sweeter product, whether it's in a cookie, a bar, or whatever it is, or just put it in your your coffee or, or tea, both are very safe um, in regards to it. It won't impact your your blood glucose levels. Awesome. And then the final one, which has become our hands down favorite. So we love erythritol, but our hands down favorite has become allulose. So can you tell us a little bit about allulose? Yes. Launched on the commercial scene in 2000, I'm going to say circa 2016. I, I almost said 2015, but I, I feel pretty confident 2016-ish right in there. Um, it's Quest Nutrition. Uh, we launched a cereal bar with that. And we had played with it for probably a good year prior to that. And yeah, we became obsessed with it for multiple reasons, uh, starting with the fact that it is a, it's an actual sugar derived in nature from various uh, vegetables and, and fruits it can be extracted in small amounts from a handful. And the best part about it is that it's about 70% as sweet as a normal 
table sugar. So you're getting that sensory benefit of it. And then from a functional standpoint, it performs almost equally to sugar as well. Um, it yields about a tenth of the, the calories as a traditional table sugar. And it really doesn't have any adverse effects from a sensory standpoint. Most people, their GI tolerance is very well. Maybe the first time you consume it, if you consume a bolus amount, like 20, 30 grams of it, first pass, you, you know, you, you may have some um, bubble guts. But for the most part, I mean, it, 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 it's very consumer friendly and it is... And zero glycemic. Zero glycemic. And th there's actually literature out there from a couple different organizations third party that have really put this under the lens and scrutinized it and a lot of the data supports that it actually has a blood glucose lowering effect and wow. there's reasons for that but we won't dive into the the deeper details of it other than yeah alios i mean it's absolutely phenomenal in the past three years it's gone gangbusters um some of the biggest players some of the biggest food uh, manufacturers in the the world now are coming out with products that have allulose in it, and it's um, that's one of my pain points and, and fears right now from a supply chain standpoint. Is because oh, yeah, it's it's right. become so incredibly popular, it's it's very scarce right now. Okay, so that was so helpful. We went through all the major ingredients. Now I want to hear about ice cream. So Josh, tell us about what you're working on now. Yeah, so Killer Creamery. Um, I joined Lewis, the, the founder of Killer Creamery, just about a year ago. And we actually, we met at KetoCon, I think in 2019, right in there. And he was the very first mover in the keto ice cream segment in space. And I was there with another company, another um, uh, keto-friendly uh, company. And we hit it off and, you know, I said, Hey, if, if you ever need anything, you know, reach out to me, this is my number. And he, he kind of took me up on that. And yeah, we, uh, we officially joined about a year ago and a year ago, all that we had were just ice cream pints. I think we had five flavors, maybe six flavors at the time. We recently just, um, expanded our pint offering. We have eight different pint flavors right now. We were the very first keto ice cream company to launch into or, or launch Allilos out into the space. So take quite a bit of, of pride with that. And as of recent, we, um, we just expanded into the frozen novelty space with a keto zero sugar ice cream sandwich, oh, which we're incredibly, I can't wait to try su it. Su super excited <laughs> about. Yeah. Yeah, no, and we're doing some some really phenomenal things. We're we're really trying to differentiate ourselves just by playing into really what consumers want. Some of the other players um, in this space, um, you could call them direct competitors, if you if you will. Um, they're kind of playing more into general flavor profiles, and we're trying to be a bit more bold and brash in that context. So coming out with some different concepts, maybe some more abstract-like concepts, and um, making sure that we're doubling down on all of our great inclusions that we have, our brownie pieces and chocolate chip cookie dough pieces, and all the various um, variegates that we use, you know, so delicious awesome. ooey gooey caramel swirls and peanut oh. butters and, and things of, of that sort yeah so killer creamery is not a sponsor we uh we are friends we've um met the owners a couple times at metabolic health summit so i'm happy 
uh, to give them a plug. How can people find Killer Creamery? Facebook, Instagram, uh, Killer Creamery, uh, both applications, LinkedIn. I want to say that we have, or we're about to, hopefully I don't um, spill the beans here. Tate, he may, he may give me a, a boot in the rear end, but uh, YouTube, I know, I know that that's something that we are working on as well, but uh, probably Instagram is, is the best platform to follow us. Awesome. Awesome. All right. And uh, last question here for you, uh, Josh, what are you personally working on in your own growth and development? Like I, I've always known you to be super focused on health and wellness uh, so I'm just wondering what's at the edge for you. Constant work in progress when it comes to patience. Just, 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 just being patient in in, in all facets of of life. Um, being patient with myself. Being patient with uh, relationships. Being patient um, in work. Um, various projects. Um, we have so many different really exciting projects um, in Killer Creamery that I just get beyond excited about. And of course, I want to be first to space with this concept or this form factor. And, you know, just recognizing that there are systems and processes. And, you know, I just can't click my heels three times or, or snap my fingers and, you know, get exactly what I want. Are there any practices that you're finding helpful in developing patients? Um, may sound a little bit quirky, corny, but um, just breath work and, and meditation. And, and even with that, having the patience to, to sit there and focus on breath for five <laughs> minutes, you Ooh, know. It sounds like a catch-22. You need the patience to actually practice the thing that's going to help you develop patience. Yeah. Th thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, I have a phenomenal wife, Victoria, and um, she stays on, on top of me and, and makes sure that I get my breath working. Where, um, things like that, they, they come so natural to her. She wakes up and she, you know, has her routine and easily slides into breath work and meditation where I wake up, I let the dogs out and I immediately get the coffee going and my laptop opens and, you know, I immediately dive into work and whatnot. And she comes in and she kind of, you know, gets at me. She's like, you need to, you know, you first. And yeah, so <laughs> patience, it's, it's, it's always, what do they say? Patience yeah. is a virtue. I seem to struggle with it. So I, I lied. I said that was the final question. That was the final question that is specific to you. These next three are questions that we ask everybody at the end of the interview. So the first one is, Josh, if you could put a big post-it note on every parent's refrigerator tomorrow morning, what would that post-it note say? Close your eyes and take four deep breaths. That's what I would. That sounds like a post note that you need. As well, <laughs> I know. Josh. Yeah, I, 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 I have. I have a verbal note from Victoria. Go do your breath work. Um, no, it, it, yeah, it's just, it, it's it's yeah. so powerful. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, even you and I sitting here right now, if, if you and I were just to take four deep inhalations and exhalations, I mean, it would you know it would change our our body chemistry. And um, I um, I don't necessarily do a lot of podcasts and, and interviews and whatnot. So of course, I'm naturally a little bit anxious right now. But I know that in just four deep breaths, like I know that I would 
I would settle down, I would come down a little bit. And especially just kicking off your day, your morning, or if it's in the end of the evening and, you know, you just finished up dinner and you got to do the dishes and this kid is painting on the wall over here. And this one needs its diaper changed. Just taking those four deep breaths. It's, it's has a pretty profound impact. Yeah. So I invite any parent, if you are in the position to do four deep breaths, it is a game changer. All right, so I'm going to now ask this uh, two last questions. Josh, do you have a quote that you've seen, heard recently that has changed the way you think or feel? Yeah, this is a quote, and unfortunately, I I wish I could tell you where I saw it or where I heard it. Um, But it when I when I initially heard it, um, it really stood out to me, and it's it's a quote that I I say to myself and remind myself almost daily, which is hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life. And it's just something that mm. really rang true with me, you know, and, and it's, it's one of those things where like, well, I was like, I was like, how does that go? And it's hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life. And the reason why that really spoke to me is we live in a world of comfort and conveniences and it, it's so easy to take, you know, the, the easy path or to make the easy decision because it's, it's convenient in that moment rather than buckling down and, and maybe challenging yourself and doing the more difficult thing, even though in that moment acutely, it may be very uncomfortable for, for you, but the reason you do it for disciplinary reasons that hopefully it's going to have, you know, um, a positive outcome. And I've applied that to literally um, all aspects of, of my life. Um, and it actually that came from a, um, a world record holder, uh, weightlifter, um, a Polish gentleman, Jerzy Gregoric. Easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life. Yep. And I think that can be applied in so many different ways, but nutrition as well. Like the easy choice is just to eat whatever's out there and to eat the yep. tasty thing and just not to worry about it. That's yep. going to lead to a hard life <laughs> in terms of your long-term health. <laughs> yep. You're already applying it. Exactly. I mean, you could take that and you could plug it in so many different places. That's it. That's it. All right. So the last one, Josh, I asked this of all the guests, whether or not they have children. So Josh, what do you like most about kids? Curiosity. The reason why I like that is because as a child, thinking back to my early childhood and then just observing um, my nieces, my nephews, um, good friends to have kids, uh, yourself, Audra, etc. is kids, they, they're naturally curious about everything. And they're, they're not afraid to, to challenge the status quo, you know, in, in, in their quest to have just have like a, a deeper understanding as, as why is this or why is, is that? And I think as we age and we go through the system, we kind of lose our curiosity. And I, I just, I would say that's probably the thing that I ad- admire most about kids is, you know, just that, that curiosity. And I really ch- challenge adults to, you know, to try to tap back into that natural state of curiosity. And that's something that, again, I'm going to plug my wife, Victoria, she's so stinking good at this. And it is just a not 
it's 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 not something that's innate in in me but moments when i when i challenge myself to be more curious it always leads to like new things that i just didn't see observe or experience and i haven't necessarily had any sort of nothing negative has has come of just me trying to be more curious so i, I would say curiosity for kids it's good for parents to be reminded of that because we get exhausted by our children's curiosity. <laughs> why? <Yeah. laughs> but why? <Yeah>. But why? <laughs> so yeah. it's nice. Yeah. All right, let's just take a deep breath and and appreciate that that pure curiosity of childhood. Exactly. Oh, Josh, thank you so much for taking out time today to talk to us. This was a wealth of information. We are going to break all this down in the show notes for parents to go at, because we we used so many different words that probably were new to many parents. Um, Oh, Josh, thank you so much. I can't wait to talk again. Be well, my friend. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. Had a blast. Uh, Definitely looking forward to hopefully seeing you guys in person, uh, Farm to Fork. I think September. That's right. Coming up. Awesome. Awesome. Be here before we know it. Thank you so much, Justin. Bye. Later. Hey. Thanks for listening to the Family Thrive Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, tell two friends, and head on over to Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts and give us a review. We're so grateful you've chosen to join us on this Family Thrive journey.